bow before you and Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to come together as as the church tonight, as the church gathered. And Father, I pray that, Lord, as we have sung to you from our hearts that tonight, God, you you have been pleased, Lord. As we have sung to you, come Lord Jesus and come Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray that, Lord, as we move into worship and the Word, Lord Jesus, you come. Reveal yourself to us more. Holy Spirit, move among us because we need you to reveal our Christ to us more and more. Lord, we don't want to just know Jesus as a Sunday school story. We don't want to just know Jesus as a written word on the page, but we ask that the written word would become the living word in our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that tonight, God, You will equip us with Your Word. You will help us to savor our Savior. You will help us to worship Him more. You will help us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You will help us to walk in the the blessing of the book of Revelation. As You have said, blessed are those who read this Word and hear this Word. And so, Father, I pray that we will walk in that blessing for our good, but beyond our good, God, for Your glory. So, Jesus, unveil Yourself to us more tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to nestle in uh, verses 4, 5, and 6 in a minute. Well, I'm going to read 4, 5, and 6, but we're actually going to sink down in verse 5 and verse 6 tonight. But uh, that's, that's where we're going to plant our feet in this great book that is revealing to us our great Savior who is the Lamb that rescued us sinners, but He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who will return one day to rule this world like we can only anticipate and long for church. Amen? Amen. Now, last week we began this adventure. We, we planted ourselves in verses 1, 2, and 3. And we savored those verses. And I told you that that was the divine thesis of the entire book of Revelation, chapter 1, all the way to chapter number 22. 
Okay, the last chapter of the book. And so th- that is the thesis. And what is that thesis? The purpose is, it, it start just as it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsis, that is the unveiling, the, re- the revealing. The book of the Revelation is about revealing to us more of our person of Jesus Christ, the revealing of who He is that is ultimately consummated that revelation in his return when he gathers his church and he sets up his kingdom. Now, I can't wait till that day comes. But the book of Revelation is about more than just that. That one day, it's about things leading up there. It's more, it's not just about events. It's not just about um, frightening and interesting things. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than fictional LaHaye and Jenkins left behind stuff, okay? It's bigger than that. I don't, listen, I told you and I'll tell you again, if it's fictional stuff and novelty you're looking for on Sunday nights, you won't find it here. It is the Word of God that I want us to see and I want to influence and I want to to impact us as we look at this unveiling of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A person in work and a revealing that is consummated in His second coming. Now, tonight we're, we're inching along Moving into the next three verses, and I don't, I don't mean to alarm you, but there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. At this rate, that yields approximately 135 messages, which means we will be here um, if we do not skip a Sunday for at least two and a half years. And people are thinking, oh my. Well, guys, I, I, I want you to know that um, we will pick up the pace. <laughs> we won't be on just three verses here and there. Um, I, I know some of you get antsy because I can linger for a long time in a few verses. And, and, and I, I just want you to know we will pick up the pace. Matter of fact, when we get to chapter 2, looking forward to chapter 2. I don't know if you remember it, but when I first came here as pastor, we actually set up shop in chapters 2 and 3. We visited. We spent about seven weeks visiting those churches. I, it's whatever the Lord wants. Do I, I don't know if we're going to visit each of those churches again. Or are we going to look at them all together, chapter 2, maybe in a couple of Sundays? I don't know. But I, what, what, what I do when I go through a book, though I'll, I'll read every jot and tittle of the book, we're only going to dig into those scriptures that come alive and the Spirit shows you. And there'll be certain things we'll focus on more than others. But I promise you, we'll do more than three verses a night, all right? Now, we may only do two next week or the next week and you'll think I'm a liar. But I promise you, we'll pick up the pace, okay? So 
Just endure the race through the book of Revelation. But anyway, tonight, what we're going to do tonight in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6, and in particular verses 5 and 6, is we're going to savor three titles of Christ being revealed to us here. And these titles in this unveiling of Christ that I'm going to read to you in just a moment ought to encourage our hearts to obey the command of Psalm 150 in verse 1, which is very simple. Hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord. And it'll lead us to praise the Lord as we move through these titles tonight, it ought to be the result of savoring them. I don't see how it cannot be. It was the result in John's life. And it should be the result in our lives if the Spirit of God abides in us. Now, let's read. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse number 4 of Revelation chapter number 1. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It shall be so now. John is writing to those seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which they are seven literal historical churches. Um, And if you can remember back years ago, I told you that that those churches, they don't. Some people will tell you they represent different periods in church history. That's just stuff people read into here. I don't care if David Jeremiah says it. I don't care if who, what, new, what end time guru says it. That is not in the text. That's reading in to the scripture. But what I do know is that the number seven is symbolic throughout the book of Revelation. The number seven is a number that represents perfectly. And what I would tell you and what I can tell you is that those seven churches are the perfect representation of God's church throughout all of history and all of time from the time that those seven literal churches existed unto today. And so I know that when John is writing and says, I'm writing to the seven churches, he's writing to Laodicea and Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia and he's writing to um, Thyatira and he's writing to Sardis and Smyrna all of those, he's writing to them yes, literally, but he is also writing to you today and we that are gathered in the church. The words that he writes here are just as relevant and valid to us as they were to them. Now, we, we need to know that lest we discount ourselves of some of the truth that is here. So John is writing to the church today as well. And he's writing, pronouncing grace and peace upon them. And then the source of that grace and peace is the triune God. <laughs> it's the triune God. And he announces this grace and peace and it culminates... 
in a triune revelation of Jesus Christ. You say, huh, what, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, first of all, the triune nature of the one God is dripping through that text. You see it there. You see it there in, in that text. And if you look at verses 4 and 5, uh, grace and peace is coming from the one eternal God, the God where the text says there who is and who was and who is to come. It's not only, and, and, and then that God, that one eternal God, is extrapolated in three persons. With the end of these verses, he mentions the Father. Up above, right after he mentions that, he, he makes reference to the Holy Spirit when he says the seven spirits before the throne of God. Now you say, wait a minute, that says seven spirits. What is that? That's an odd way of saying things. Well, I would suggest to you, some people would suggest to you that, that that reference is to the Holy Spirit and the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. You say, what's the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, when people refer to that, they're often referring back to Isaiah chapter number 11. You can read about verse 2, and what you find there is the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord. And, if, and, and beneath that phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, there are six different ministries of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, those up that seven. I don't know that that's a, real, a link there solidly between that. I'm just telling you that's what some people do. But what I can tell you again, numbers are important in the book of Revelation. Numbers carry meaning in the book of Revelation. And seven is perfection and that is that the perfect revelation of the Spirit of God is before the throne of God. That is what I see clearly when I look at that. So we see the Holy Spirit that is, is there. Then we see the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's mentioned, Jesus Christ is mentioned in there. And then Jesus Christ, there is a further expansion given about him. And that's rightly so. Further knowledge expanded on more is being emphasized on the second person of the Godhead. And rightly so, because this book is not the revelation of the Father. This book is not the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Though the Father and the Spirit are there all the way from Revelation 1.1 all the way to 22.21. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ that is who the revelation is of, and therefore we have more about him here. And there are three things that we're told about Jesus, three titles to be given to his name, things for us to savor. And then we see, and here's the neat thing, we see, this isn't just abstract theological truth, we see that there is a practical reason for these theological truths about Christ that are put in here, that there is a specific and intended result, and that result is worship, as I'm going to show you in this text. 
I told you from the beginning when we were in here, my pastoral heart for you as we go through the book of Revelation is not so much that you'll be able to become some end time guru, but that your reaction to what you are seeing and what we are going through as we study through the book of the Revelation is that we will find ourselves impacted like the elders in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation who stood before the lamb that was slain and they fell down on their faces and they were worshiped him that is what my heart is beating for that is what i long for that it will expand our worship our worship of he who is able to save will not be cool it will not be low-key but we will be moved in a way that cannot be explained by anything other than a supernatural experience in god now what do we see here Let's consider these titles. First, I want you to see the the titles, and then I want you to see the result. Now, there are three titles here. And these three titles, I I said something odd. I said something about they reveal the triune nature of Christ. Maybe I shouldn't use the word triune there. But it, it does reveal, I think, the threefold ministry of Christ, that Christ is our, and you'll see how these relate to this, that Christ is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Okay, now you'll see that, and I'll show you how that is. So let's think about this. Revelation chapter 1. The first thing, what is being unveiled? What is being revealed about Jesus Christ in verse 5? Well, Jesus Christ is being revealed as the faithful witness. Jesus Christ is being revealed as the faithful witness. And this is why he gets to serve as our priest. And you'll see that in just a moment. Faithful witness. What what is a faithful witness? In the Greek, that that phrase there is martos o paistos. And and that first word kind of gives you a hint of what a witness is. Martos, it's also the root of the English term martyr. So the witness is a, a martyr, okay? It, 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 a matter of fact, that word that's witness or martyr, it means one who suffers death for a cause to bear testimony. And then this one who is suffering death for a cause is found to be faithful, believable, trustworthy, true, credible. So there's, there's multiple layers of meaning here. But first thing that I would note to you, about this title of Christ is is we see that he was faithful unto death by virtue of the meaning martyr. He was faithful unto death. Now, this is very important that these original recipients to whom he was writing was reminded of this because they faced death every day. You understand, they faced... I mean, John, who is writing this book, was in prison right now on the island of Patmos because of his witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those in those churches, if I, you know, for example, in Sardis, in the church of Sardis, they endured great suffering. Now, that was Smyrna, excuse me. One of those S's. And so they faced, it, they faced death every day. It was, it was not unusual for them to face death 
For example, uh, in the Roman Colosseum, or death by crucifixion, or death by stoning, or death, they face death because of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a single example of this. I don't know if you're familiar with Ignatius. Ignatius was, in the early church, was the bishop of the church at Antioch. And somewhere around 107 A.D., the Roman emperor decided, he, matter of fact, he, he himself personally went to Antioch and he made this decree that all the Christians there, they either worship the pagan gods of Rome or they die. Well, Ignatius refused to. And so Ignatius, as the leader and representation of the Christian church in the community of Antioch, he was arrested, he was taken captive, he was taken by soldiers back to Rome, he was placed in the Roman Colosseum, wild beasts were released in there, and he was devoured. The record says only his bones were left. I don't know, I wasn't there. I've been to the Colosseum, but I didn't see Ignatius. I'm not that old. I'm not as old as Archie. Now, now, the thing about Ignatius and many of these others that face death, they didn't fear their death. People wrote about Ignatius, about how he was bold even in the face of death, bold even like Stephen of the New Testament. You remember what it was like when Stephen was being stoned for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they faced death. People today face death. Missionaries around the world do. And ultimately, as we move forward, because we are in the last day. Remember I told you last week, eschatologically, and we are in the last day. We've been in the last day since Christ ascended into heaven. But as we near the last days of the last day, the love of many will grow cold. And I don't care whether you find yourself in Iran or in Culver County, you'll probably find yourself faced with death. And it is the message of our faithful witness unto death that will encourage our hearts to stand strong in the midst of what we face. It was the message of the faithful witness that encouraged Paul to stand strong in the face of his death. It was the message of the faithful witness that encouraged Stephen, that encouraged Ignatius, that will encourage you if you ever find yourself in this position. There's something about our Christ that has gone before us and was faithful unto death. That in that we find strength. Not only because of what He died for leaves us with the promise of Philippians 1.21 that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But there's something spiritually dynamic about it that can encourage our hearts in the midst of what we face. How do I know this? Is it because I have faced death and I came through it strong? No. No, but I know it because we have the writings of the book of Hebrews in chapter number 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. You know what that says, don't you? Having been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you're familiar with it. Well, let me, let me, I don't want to leave any 
term out of it. Let me read it to you. In the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, Consider Him who endured hostility from sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And that applies not only to facing martyrdom, but to facing anything, really. Because He is our faithful witness, having our eyes fixed upon Him, we gain encouragement and strength. The early church needed that. The latter-day church will need that. Ah, the present-day church will need that. So we're having it revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the faithful martyr. That He was faithful unto death. But that word, faithful witness, it gives us more. That word, faithful witness, is telling us that Jesus was credible testimony. He was a credible testimony about God to man. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it... If you'll turn, first of all, to John's Gospel, chapter number 18. John's Gospel, chapter number 18. Jesus has a conversation with Pilate. And in that conversation, He tells us something. In verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king. Jesus answered, You say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus Christ is the witness of to the truth, and specifically, he is a witness to the truth about God. He is the only place where you can find truth about God. He's it. He is our, he is our prophet, the one who faithfully declares truth concerning God, and he is God come in human flesh to make Him known. If you go over to John chapter 1, this is John. John, and there's a, there's a special intimacy between the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation because this is the same John that's writing Revelation. In John chapter number 1, I want you to see a connection between this truth he re is revealing is truth about God. If you look at verse 18, listen to what John writes. 
No one has ever seen God. Okay? That's the statement. No one has ever seen God. Next, this goes together. The only God. How many gods? The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. He has made Him known. Jesus Christ has made Him known. Because He is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word that was with God. The Word that was God. You say, I can't wrap my mind around it. You don't have to because it's God and God is bigger than you. But I want you to understand there is no Savior but God. And Christ is our Savior. And He is the source of truth revealing about it. He is, He is, as we said, the faithful witness about, He is the faithful witness. He is the one who is declaring truth about God. That's it. So Jesus Christ is revealed as the faithful witness. Jesus was faithful unto death. Jesus was credible testimony about God to man. Now, Jesus was also revealed as the firstborn from among the dead. He was the firstborn from among the dead. We see how Jesus Christ is our prophet as the faithful testimony to the truth. Now we can see how he is our priest and he is revealed as the firstborn from among the dead. Cults like to take this phrase and turn it into crazy little things. But it's quite evident what this means. Very evident. What do you think this reveals about Christ? Well, I'll tell you this. It reveals something that without it, His faithful witness unto death means nothing. If He was not the firstborn from among the dead, He could not be the faithful witness. The martyr with a cause. The death on a cross. He could not be. He had to be the firstborn from among the dead. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it does not mean, it does not mean that Jesus was simply raised to life again. Now listen to me carefully. I'll speak slowly. Resurrection, as miraculous as it is, isn't something significant in and of itself. Nor does it mean that Jesus was the first person to be raised from the dead, because He was not. Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead in Mark chapter 5. This is something special about resurrection. And we find out what it is. Remember, whenever you're wondering about what something is, you don't have to go somewhere else outside of the Bible to try and find what it means. The Bible tells you. Context tells you. Verse 18 of chapter 1 tells us there's something very unique and special about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, listen to verse number 18. Revelation chapter number 1. The Scripture says this. 
I'm going to go back up to verse 17 though. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Verse 18. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. (laughs) Do you hear that? I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to the king. I have the keys to death and hell. Hades. Do you hear that? You see, Lazarus may have been raised up from the grave, but Lazarus died later on. Jairus' daughter may have been miraculously raised back to life, but she died later on. But Christ, when He came out of the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, He did not die, but ascended to the right hand of the Father where He's ruled forevermore and He'll rule forever. And there's coming a time when Christ will come back and He will gather His church. And when He comes back to gather His church, guess what? The dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive shall be caught up together with them in the air. And guess what? When those that have died in the Lord Lord are resurrected and are caught up together with Him in the, in the air. They'll never die too, but they won't be the firstborn among the dead. Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. The church is the second. <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's good. Jesus Christ is revealed as the firstborn from among the dead. The world is totally blind to the pleasure and peace of this reality about Christ. You think about it. The world fears death. The world is afraid of death. We avoid death. We prolong dying men on life support systems. We have some men that have the money to invest in cryogenics and they have them by their bodies frozen in hopes that in a day later in future time they can be thawed out and resuscitated. Everybody's trying to escape death. But you see, saints, we no longer have to fear death. Jesus was saying to the early Christians that face death every day, and He's saying to us, He's saying to us, I am the victory over death. I am the one that holds the keys to death and hell. It makes me think of the Apostle Paul and what he said about Christ when he quoted this, when he said this, and I'll quote him, Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory over the death through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying to the early church, if Rome kills your body, I'll raise it again. He's saying to you today, church, if coronavirus kills your body, I'll raise it again. If cancer kills your body, I'll raise it again. If you get shot in the head at Walmart because somebody knows you represent Christ, I'll raise you again. Do you hear me? He is the victory over death. Third title in these verses we are given is Jesus Christ is revealed as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And here we have where I told you He's our King. 
We've seen Him as our prophet. We've seen Him as our priest because He lives forevermore to make intercession for us. And now we see Him as our King. He is our King. The Bible says, the end of verse 5 over into verse 6, says that He says He's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. The ruler of kings on the earth. Now what is this? That, that is not referring to political kings and kingdoms. Although it would be perfectly true to say he is sovereign over political kings and kingdoms. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs that he can guide the heart of a pagan king like a stream of water. But that is not what it's talking about right here. Although that's true. You see, he is the king and ruler in this verse of those who've been freed by his blood, of those whom he has made both kings and priests in his kingdom. He is the king of us who have been saved because wherever we're saved, the king rules, and wherever the king rules, the kingdom can be found. Now that is good. That is good news. Now immediately Jesus is saying to those original recipients, it's not Nero who is in charge of your life. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not Joe Biden that's in charge of your life. It's not Donald Trump that's in charge of your life. It is Jesus Christ. He is the ruler and sovereign king for all eternity, now and forever. And one day, you with Christ will rule the world. It will not be Obama or Biden or Trump or, or Putin or Hitler or anybody else. But it will be the church with Christ ruling the world. We will be the theocracy that the first group thought Christ was coming to be what He wasn't. They butchered the Old Testament revelation of what Messiah was supposed to be. Now, that's the titles. Now consider the result of the titles. <laughs> I like this. Uh, what is it? Well, I'll tell you what it is, and I'll show it to you right here in the pages of this text. The results of this revelation is a doxology of spontaneous praise. That's what seems to happen here. John bursts forth in praise and worship based on these three titles of truth. You see, truth ought to spark a flame. And truth ought to collide with spirit. Erupting in something God glorifying in your heart. Let me read to you this passage again and let you get a feel for it. And then I'll show you just what John did. Beginning back in verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace to you from him who is, who is, 
excuse me, who was and who is and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Oh my, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, He's made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John went from giving you Baptistic and Presbyterian-like truths to all of a sudden erupting in Pentecostal praise. Wow. He began to praise the Lord. He says to Him who loved us. You know why I think He's declaring that praise? Truth ought to lead to praise. He's saying to Him who loved us because I think He was thinking about the faithful witness. Romans 5 and verse 8 says that God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He praises He who freed us. How did He free us? Well, He is the firstborn from among the dead, apart from which the resurrection, if there is no resurrection, we should be pitied among all people, and everything we believe is in vain. But Christ is risen. He's risen. He's alive. He praises Him for He has made us. What's He made us? Well, as our sovereign ruler, He has made us what we are, kings and priests of the Most High God. You hear me? You don't need some special priest. Christ is your high priest, and Christ has made you kings and priests. You don't have to go to some little confessional and talk to some priest. Had somebody wanted to share with me and talk with me about how their false church had the Macalzadak priesthood in its eldership. And I wanted to say, you idolaters, there's only one, listen, there's only one in the priesthood of Melchizedek and he's Jesus Christ. I don't care what Mason groups told you, you're in the, priest of, uh, you're in the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's hogwash. This wasn't about the Masons. This was about the Mormon church. They don't have a special priesthood in line with Melchizedek. Only Jesus Christ is the high priest that has come through Melchizedek. You can't worship another. And it's idolatrous to call yourself one. You're a kingdom and priest in Him. Does that make sense? Oh, I then started messing with waters, but that's okay. I just want to glorify Jesus Christ. (laughs) Wow. Biblical preaching, declaring theological truth, the world calls it boring. Many people in the church say it's impractical. Give me some seven easy steps to improve my marriage or improve my job performance. And they totally miss the understanding of what preaching is all about. You see, that's man-centered ideology. True preaching is about God-centered declarations. The world would say it's boring, but see... What I have shared with you tonight, don't dismiss as abstract theological truths. This is not grand information for Bible trivia. No, this is biblical theology that can ignite 
in a heart, spirit-formed passion for Jesus Christ. Seeing the glory of Jesus Christ like John saw in this unveiling of Christ moves the heart to burst forth in Christ-centered praise. Truth that leads the heart. Leads it to praise. That is the heart that is prone to wander on its own. But it will lead it to praise Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who were before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom and priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to ask everyone to stand, every head to be bowed, every eye to be closed.